The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Just to get prepared for worship as best we can, whether I'm preaching or not, it helps. I remember thinking through that. I remember as kids, you, those of you that grew up in the church, especially in the Baptist church, you remember having your Sunday school quarterly? You remember your quarterly, Tim? Um, so you, you carried that with your Bible. You carried your Sunday school lesson with you. And, and I remember my parents... Uh, which I dreaded, by the way, Mom. Um, I remember our parents making us on Saturday night read the Sunday school lesson for the next day. And that was a ritual in the Cone house for some reason a ritual that I despised. But it was a ritual. I didn't want to... But at that time, I didn't want to read anything. Um, but those things are helpful in preparation uh, for our time and worship on Sunday. Those are things I think that would be helpful for everybody every day. But David gives us something to reflect upon here in developing a lifestyle or a, a, a heart condition for the type of believer that God affirms in his presence. That's the question for us today. It's easy to use the superficial things to prepare your hearts, but how are we living our daily lives so that we will be acceptable to dwell in a Holy Father's presence? It's a short uh, psalm and to the point. And I know you're thinking now if only the sermon would be short and to the point. Well, we'll start at the beginning of the introduction there, a Psalm of David. It gives no indication. Some of them do. You remember we preached Psalm 3 a couple of weeks ago. It told us what was going on in David's life in the introduction before the psalm begins, but no indication here. We do have some ideas, though. Although he just says a Psalm of David, he meditates through this psalm on the character of the man who's received into the presence of God. Scholars agree that this psalm, and um, uh, just like Psalm 24, uh, which are very similar, is connected in some sense to the establishment of the tabernacle because he talks about the tent and he talks about uh, the holy hill. And so David, we know, established the tabernacle on Mount, on Temple Mount, on Mount Zion, and um, so there, there's some connection between that psalm and this. In fact, he could have even written this psalm and possibly Psalm 24 on that occasion when the Ark of the Covenant was brought and the Tabernacle, the Tent of Meeting, was was placed on Mount Zion or Temple Mount. Regardless, this is a time when David's very much concerned with questions asked and answered in this psalm. Spurgeon refers to the opening verse. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Spurgeon calls it the great question. 
asked by idle curiosity, despair, godly fear, earnest inquirer, soul troubled by falls of others, holy faith. All those things uh, David mentions there, or Spurgeon mentions there about David, uh, leads people to ask questions like this. Things such as curiosity or despair or fear, troubled souls. Those are the things that cause us to say, God, how can I be in your presence more effectively, more, more permanently? And so that's why David asked this question. And no matter what's going on in your life today that causes you to ask these questions, the answer is always the same. And it's a simple outline you see we have there. There's a question, and there's the answer, and there's a guarantee at the end. Some say, some scholars say this is like a liturgical psalm, whereas it was written for worship, first day of the week. It's appropriate for the Lord's Day. We come to Psalm 29, says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Um, it's important to understand that that's a possibility as well. That this song, you, the question is asked and the question is answered, which is not abnormal for those sorts of things. But regardless of that as well, this psalm does fall under the category of the wisdom psalms. First, the question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Two questions. They really amount to one question. Um, one question stated twice. The combination of the tent and the combination with the holy hill seems to say to us that the Ark of the Covenant had already been moved by uh, David to Mount Zion. We see that in Second Samuel 6, uh, verses 12 through 15. So David went and brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, uh, to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And then verse 17 and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So it was the tent of meeting. It was where uh, Israel worshipped, called the tabernacle. It was a large tent where the ark of the covenant was kept. In David's time, as we see, he moved it to the city of David, or Jerusalem, uh, to Mount Zion. That's what we call, that, that's the holy hill he's talking about. We saw a reference to holy hill in Psalm 2, I believe. It was God's mountain. It was a holy mountain, set apart for his use, kept pure for his glory. It was a place of worship. Albeit temporary, it was God's house of worship. But when we read that first sentence, it relates to the tabernacle and the location where the tabernacle was placed. 
At this time, God doesn't have a permanent house in Israel. And David decided to, the story in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 7, that David decides to build a house. Now that he's placed the tent there, he said there needs to be, God needs a permanent house there. And so he goes to Nathan. You might remember the story and, and uh, asked Nathan, talks to him about um, uh, building a permanent house for God there. And Nathan says, go for it, in so many words. And, um, but the Lord sent Nathan back to David and said, and God said to David, um, you will not build me a house, but I'll build you a house. And he describes the house of David that will be eternal and will include the Messiah. At this point, there's no house, and that, that, the res, that, that, that's reserved building the permanent building, the temple on Temple Mount uh, was going to be Solomon's job. That text there in just a couple of verses in 2 Samuel 7, at the end of verse 11, he says, The Lord will make you a house. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Most of you know the rest of that story. This question means that David is thinking about what is, what, what is it like? He's, he may already have that permanent house on his mind and because he made the plans for it. How do I enter into the presence of God in worship? He's thinking about going there to experience fellowship with God, to, to dwell on his holy hill with him. What kind of child of God can do that? He asked, who may sojourn, or your translation may say, abide in the tabernacle, or dwell. Those are terms that talk about a, a continued, uh, enduring experience of fellowship with God. Something that's established and, and, and secure and, and continues on and on. Who may experience enduring, unhindered fellowship with the Lord? He could, be, he could have asked that. What is the character of the person God approves? He could have asked that. He must, how must we live to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with God? Now, this question doesn't... It, it's about godly living. It's not about justification. The two are related, but not the same. It's then the question about how you can be made right with God or how you can enter into a relationship with God. If you ask that question, the answer, there's only one answer for that. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is about how someone who already has a relationship with God may experience fellowship with Him in a more enduring and deeper way. 
It's about the kind of person of which God approves. It's not about, it, it, it is about assurance of salvation. It's not about receiving salvation. It's God's tent. God's place. The location where he can be worshipped. If this is the place where he's worshipped, David is asking, who can draw near to him? I wrote out some more possible questions. Who's entitled to stand before this holy and awesome God and offer him praise? How do we live in order to be in a place of constant worship? Who may enjoy life in the house of God? What does a worshiper of God dwelling in his presence look like? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a question for you. Because David's going to tell you how to live. If you aren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this message is vital for you. You can't live as this text describes apart from Jesus Christ. Sam Storm said, David is not describing the means by which to be saved, but rather what it means to be saved. These moral declarations are not conditions for acceptance with God. They are the consequence of it. Thus, David is not talking about requirements for entrance into the kingdom on the part of those outside, but about enjoyment of the king on the part of those on the inside. Just to end this point, the tabernacle was the place where God met man and man met God through the service of the priests and the sacrifice. David's longing to abide in that place, in your tabernacle, he says, actually a desire to abide in the presence of God. That David has in mind the life that lives in that presence of God. How did, what, the life that's lived in our context Monday through Saturday before we gather for worship. That determines the depth of our worship. That determines our close, our close fellowship with God during the week determines our dwelling in His holy hill today as we gather. So who can sojourn in God's tent? Who can dwell on His holy hill? Well, He gives the answer. For starters, we need to understand it's God's tent. It's God's hill. I remember as a little kid, I thought I always thought it was silly, but I remember as a little kid we'd be playing in church and 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 the older folks would say, Don't run in church. Or if they really wanted to make you feel feel guilty, it's don't run in God's house. You're in God's house. I was never convicted by that, by the way. But it's God's tent. It's God's house. We don't set the terms. He does. We don't decide as, as, as mere human beings how we're acceptable to God. That's God's call to make. He sets the bar. And the, by the way, the bar is high. He makes the standards. 
And since it's a holy hill, we know that the standards must have something to do with holiness. To be set apart, to be pure, to be perfect, to be spotless. It's important to realize that unstated in this question is that not everyone can sojourn in this tent. Not everyone can dwell on his hill. If everyone could, then why ask the question? Not everyone meets God's standards. And so he talks about it. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So, O Lord, who shall, he's addressing God, who shall sojourn in your tent? Well, the short answer is the righteous person. David's short answer, not quite that short, but David's short answer, look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. That's your three-point outline, which I'm not using today. Walk, works, words. Your walk, blamelessly. Your works, does what is right. Your words, speaks truth in his heart. David's talking about the kind of person who consistently lives in a way that pleases his heavenly Father. Using the common biblical metaphor of walking to speak about the way one lives his life. Walking through life. How one lives his life. That person's life will not just be talk of of righteousness. It will also be filled with righteous actions. And they'll always speak in ways that are pleasing to God. But he doesn't stop with that general description of verse 2. He gets a little more specific in other areas. The first is godly character will show in a person's speech. Uh, first part of verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue. Godly character will show in a person's speech. This refers to a person who does no harm to others through gossip. Benjamin Keats, uh, a 19th century uh, pastor and hymn writer, you've sung some of his hymns, you just don't know it, wrote a little book called The Glory of a True Church. It's a discussion on church discipline he gives here. And he says this, If any member walks disorderly, though not guilty of scandalous sins, he or she, as soon as it is taken notice of, ought to be admonished, and the church is to endeavor to be used to bring him to repentance. Then he usually refers to 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. It's that same three-part outline in a different way. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
teach goes on. Such as meddle with matters that do not concern them. It may be instead of following their own trade and business, they go about from one member's house to another telling or carrying tales and stories of this brother or of that brother or sister, which perhaps may be true or perhaps false and may be also to the reproach and scandal of some member or members, which if so, it is backbiting. This is so notorious a crime that without repentance they shall not ascend God's holy hill. Godly character was showing a person's speech. James Boyce on this verse says, I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. So I say, don't do it. Bite your tongue before you criticize another Christian. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is so vital that it's an emphasis in conflict resolution in our church. And we address it in a number of places. It does not slander. is deadly. It's a cancer in the church. What David has in mind here, too, is that it's not just within the church. Never slander anyone whether that person is another Christian or not. Godly character was shown in a person's speech. Secondly, godly character was shown in a person's conduct toward others. Second part of that, verse 3, does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. David also knew that righteousness was displayed in the way we treat one another. We might have thought David would would actually have a higher priority on other worship matters like our religious obligations or our sacrifice, the sacrifices that were taking place. It could be he could admonish the people that, you know, that that you're getting weak on bringing those supposedly spotless animals for the sacrifice. You know, you might want to fix that particular problem. Purification ceremonies. He could have listed some things that needed to be done so that people can worship in deeper and more powerful ways. And some things, some religious obligations have their place, but they're useless without the practical godliness of being good and honest and honorable to our neighbors and to our friends does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Reproach. It could be a slur. It could be to defame. But when he, said, when he uses the word takes up, what he means is receiving. When you receive that, another person is reproaching a neighbor and you receive what they say. You receive it as truth. You give credit to what that person says about that third party. He doesn't originate the reproach. Well, I'm just repeating what somebody said. It didn't come from me. But he does quickly accept it when stated by others. There's no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Godly character will show in a person's conduct toward others. 
That's the person who can dwell on God's holy hill. Thirdly, God, godly character was shown a person's choice of role models. First part of verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What are your role models? Who do you look up to? Whose actions and character do you find offensive? One sad thing about today's world is that our heroes seem to be evil people. Do you notice that? Especially with kids. We glorify the vile person. Or, as the, the, the polls reflect, kids just don't have any role models at all these days. It's funny, we admire the evil person, but not the father who works hard to provide for his family. That's a role model. We admire that evil person or that gazillionaire playing NBA basketball, but not mothers who are faithful caring for or rearing their children. We admire that evil person, but not people who sacrifice for others. I've heard it said, and I don't know where, sorry. We've reached a point in our day where people would rather be envied than admired. A godly person will always want his role model to be other godly people. It's a great example in the New Testament, Philippians 2. Paul talks about Epaphroditus. Now, verses 25 following. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Wow! Wouldn't you want somebody to say that about you? (laughs) Spurgeon said, we must be as honest in paying respect as in paying our bills. Honor to whom honor is due. To all good men we owe a debt of honor. We have no right to hand over what is there due to vile persons who happen to be in high places. Godly character will show up in a person's choice of role models. Fourthly, godly character will show in a person's integrity. Second part of verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Well, that's simple. If a godly person gives his word to do something or enters into a contract, he will not go back on his commitment even if he finds out it's going to cost him more than he thought. Even if it finds out it's going to do him harm, cost him dearly, cause him to lose in any way. He stands by his word. You've heard your word is your bond. There was a time long before me when you, you could agree on a contract with a handshake. And you could stand on it. He swears to his own hurt, does not change. Godly character showing a person's integrity. And fifthly, first part of five, 
Godly character is shown a person's use of money. Who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the, the innocent. It's not a statement never to charge interest. Banks, banks do it. A banking system in the Old Testament did that, and that was the only way they could survive. But in the law, a Jew was not to take advantage of a needy Jew by charging interest. A godly person does not try to benefit on the misfortune of others. Typically what happened to poor people in ancient times, back in those times, it was fresh in David's mind because it was a part of the culture. It was common to those who had plenty of money to to loan it to desperate people, people who were trying to survive, to charge them exorbitant interest rates. Like that payday loan thing that went on several years ago. There's no room for greed like that in a godly person's life. Secondly, he says a godly person would not pervert justice for money. Bribery was also common in the ancient world as it is today. But a godly person would have nothing to do with bribery, even if he himself was poor has just run from it. Godly character is showing a person's use of money. And that list can be long. But we need to understand that these few items that David lists is not all-inclusive. It's not a complete list. Godly character is showing a person's speech and their conduct toward others and their choice of role models and the person's integrity and their use person's use of money. It's not all-inclusive. We've got Psalm 24. has some other things. Isaiah 33 um, lists some things as well. Not identical to the items that are in this list. So this is not the total list of things. Okay, if I'm, I'm going to do these things, then I can dwell in God's holy hill. No, it's not quite like that. It's easy to look at that. Just this list of a few Godly characteristics and see where we fall short. And when you see your sin in this psalm, hopefully it drives you to Jesus. See this whole psalm in the, in, in the, 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 the grid of the new covenant. We see Jesus, we see him perfectly fulfilling the requirements of the law and the standards of these psalms. I say God's bar is high. Yeah, God's bar is high. It's perfection. And we see that by faith his obedience is accounted as ours. We're to be transformed in the image, into his image, so that the fulfillment of this psalm can actually be accomplished in our lives. Taken all together, David's describing a righteous man, fair, just in all his ways. In fact, we can sum it up by going back to verse 2. He who walks blamelessly. There's the standard. There's the level of performance God expects. Qualifications for residence in God's household on God's holy hill. 100% on the exam of life. It's what you got to do. 
blamelessness, perfection, holiness. God everywhere in Scripture demands spotless, perfect perfection from his people. The sacrifices that are brought had to be unblemished. No spots, no wounds, no injuries on that sacrifice. Any sin, no matter how small, was a capital offense in God's eyes. Ezekiel warned Israel, the soul that sins shall die. Paul in Romans says the wages of sin is death. Christ told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the bar is really high, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, okay. Thought I was by myself for a minute. And we think, why can't God give us a handicap? Why can't He make allowances for my imperfection? You're here today and you're without Christ. I know that's exactly what you're thinking. Doesn't He make allowances? Well, he can't, because he's talking about his holy hill. Because the worship in his tent is to be holy, because he's a holy God, absolutely perfect, totally set apart, completely spotless. So this list, in a way, is law, and it lays out God's expectations, and if we fail to... To keep them, we sin and we fall short of the mark. And we believers know that the only person that meets that standard, and so we turn to him. Perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we serve him in trust and submit in obedience for him to make us the people that we can be in order to dwell in God's presence. That's not a salvation by works, but it's the work we're to do, all of these. Someone said, you don't get to heaven by your works, but your works follow you to heaven. And in the Reformed tradition, you've often heard this phrase, we are saved by grace through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith brings righteous works. Right along with it, every moment of our lives. This is the great source of assurance that God is at work in us for His glory and for our good through His Son so that we might accomplish His standard. Who can sojourn in God's tent? Who can dwell on His holy hill? The one who recognizes their failure to do all these things that David describes and more and realizes that they have no hope of eternal life, of pleasing God on their own. They have no hope of meeting this standard. Their only hope to stand before God and not be immediately destroyed is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Why aren't we destroyed? He took God's wrath for us. And then David tags on a guarantee there at the end. 
last part of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. We've had some uh, thunderstorms this week. A neighbor had lightning hit a tree and then came down, went underground, went in his garage and blew up all the electrical stuff in his garage. That'll move you. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Hear these words and do them. You shall never be moved. Moved from what? Well, most likely the promise is that this individual will never be moved or separated from God. Moved from their sojourn of worship. Moved from dwelling on God's holy hill. The idea is that such a man who's blameless, who does what is right, cannot be moved. He cannot fall. He can't be dislodged. He's secure. He's safe. And he's sound. What about this guarantee? If we can't meet the standard, then we don't get the blessing, right? But Christ did. Christ met the standard. Can never be moved, cannot be shaken. It's an unshakable kingdom, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Your assignment. Those of you here confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your assignment is to apply these to your life. Your assignment is obedience. Apply these to your life. Strive for these. Strive for a life of integrity. Realizing all along you can't do it apart from Christ. Charles Simeon said, We're the Christian's stability to depend solely on the strength of the gracious principle within him, he would have but little hope of enduring to the end. But God has encouraged us to exert ourselves, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, in the full persuasion that he will give us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he goes on to say, Let this then stir us up to walk worthy of our high calling, and let us be steadfast, immovable, shall never be moved, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor shall not be in vain in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's your challenge. How to live to enjoy unhindered fellowship with God. It shows up in your speech. It shows up in your conduct toward other people. It shows up in, in, in who your role models are. It shows up in who you hang out with. It shows up in, in your integrity. It shows up in your use of money and many other things. 
O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who, O Lord, can come before you with unhindered fellowship before a holy God? Who can do that? Christ is our answer. The only one that can live up to it by perfection. Trust Him today. Let's pray. We'll close with a hymn in a minute. As we do, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. If you have any questions about the message you have, uh, you need somebody to pray with you, encourage you to make your way back there while we sing. Father, thank you for your word, the truth of your word. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for all our needs and you have called us to yourself, your church, to yourself. Now mold us and shape us and make us to the men and women of God you've called us to be. Give us a hunger and desire to live righteous lives so that our the depth of our worship, the depth of our walking with you might be more real and more powerful. We praise you for the promise and for the guarantee that shall never be moved as we walk with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.